I'll never and get to we're live. Wow. We are live. Cool. Excellent. Hey, guys. It's um, Craig or Al Mozzie. Stop fighting. Crafty from uh, Aussie Craft Distillers shooting the shit and Craftworks Distillery. And I'm in my shed. There we are. In my shed, broadcasting from the shed. And uh, so this is, yeah, Aussie Craft Distillers shooting the shit. So for those who don't know, it's a couple of guys, uh, Luke, Todd, and myself, and we basically just shoot the shit, have conversations with people in the industry in Australia. Luke's laughing, so something's happened, and uh, internationals as well. So tonight, tonight we are returning to Tasmania. We haven't been to Tasmania for a little bit, so and tonight we're returning to the cooperage so we had uh yn oak uh andrew young on i don't know uh last year sometime and tonight we have transwood cooperage laurie and dave guys how are you going great mate going great excellent good that's good to hear and it's a clear reception and we're all all here so that's good all right, so let's let's kick it off. Let's rip into it. But the first thing we always do is say, well, what are we going to be drinking tonight? Um, and the idea is to drink something which is Australian. So I'll kick it off first because I've got something pretty cool. So Show first me. thing is my beer, a Borellan beer, which I got from a Voyager Craft Malt, Stu Wycross, and uh, he gave me a case of this. And uh, it's a damn fine beer. Then I'm moving on to it's ginger beer cask night. Sorry, Todd. I know we split this, but I'm drinking it tonight. It's all right. This is the ginger beer cask from Starwood down in Melbourne. And then this is the ginger beer cask from, if you can see it, from Hobart. Mm. So it's a ginger beer tonight. So that's what I'm drinking. Uh, Laurie, Dave, what are you drinking? Uh, I've got a Calara tonight, uh, musket cask. Oh, uh, very nice. Christy, yeah, Christy Booth Lark makes hot whiskey. Uh, that's what I'm starting off with. Uh, I don't know what you got there, Loz. Um, I've got a trusty Cooper's Midi and a, um, and a, a glass of the, um, oops. Oh. Oh no, we've lost them already. Uh, what happened there? We've been doing so well. We've had the last half oh, hour. Okay. Oh, okay. You're back, you're back, you're back. No, we don't no, know what you're never, drinking. You never know what they are drinking. <laughs> it's a secret. That's that, that Cooper's, Cooper's beer, what, none of it? It was, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. What was the whiskey you're going to drink? Uh, Hillwood, Hillwood Chardonnay cask. Right, you dropped out for a second. We didn't, we didn't hear it. So, okay, so yep. the, the Hillwood, Hillwood uh, Chardonnay cask, excellent. That'd be cool. All right, um, Todd, the Todd, my right hand man, mate. What are you drinking? Well, it comes across. So, first one is a new distillery that I discovered at the markets over the weekend. So it's called wow. Moonshiner Pomegranate Gin. Wow, it's rather interesting. Um, Quite spicy. I picked up one of those from the market as well. Yeah. So they, they had some pretty interesting stuff. Mm. Developed over um, as a result of being locked down in COVID. So they thought, what the heck are we going to do? Let's make gin. And then I'm going, moving over to 
know, my trusty. Yeah, lovely. So, how do you say that, Todd? How do you say it? Uh, Reposado. Reposado. <laughs> well done. Reposado. <laughs> so, the reason why I said that, Sorry, is because um, <laughs> Rosemary uh, from Black Snake Distillery, um, she's a she's a friend of a friend of the shed, um, and they're in Narrabri, and they make uh, agave spirit. And I have tr I have trouble saying reposado, so she's she put it on a text. Yeah, sorry, Rosemary. <laughs> <laughs> so every time every time I get close to it, she gives me shit about it. You know, reposado. So. I can't say. Anyway, we just sent but, a uh, we just sent a fifty liter cask up to him this week. Yeah, of course you know them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot. Of course you do. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Um, okay, and Luke, it extraordinaire and everything else. What are um, you doing? You on? So I've got. Ooh, the lights a bit dodgy there. Oh, let me shine off. I have uh, the OCD. Pretty bottle. Uh, the OCD uh, Barrel Seven. I don't. It's his whiskey. The OCD. It, okay. The latest so release. Basically, Ed got lazy and didn't put it on. And the didn't even put a fucking name on it. <laughs> on you, Ed. Um. So yeah, I'm on that one because I missed out yeah. on the first on his first release. So yeah. I stepped up a second. Uh, and then I'm going to move on to a black snake. <laughs> you can say it, not me. Uh, well, I've I've got the Hoven. Oh, not Joven, it's Hoven. <laughs> so the Joven, right, Rosemary. Um, the Joven, is it Joven? Joven. Okay. Rosemary, can you type? Can you send it phonetically, please? Because Luke Luke needs some uh, some I help got it. there. <laughs> I got it. So yeah, I'll be on that. Yeah, right, cool. All right, so let's rip into it. All right. So yeah, uh, Silent J. Oven. Oven. She says Silent J. Thank you, Rosemary. Okay, so um what I want to kick it off uh is with um so um there's a lot of talk in the industry about shortage of wood. Um and some of it's been driven by COVID, some of it's been driven by shortages general shortages, some of it's been uh, driven by issues with freighting and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, Dave and Laurie, can you just kick it off from, you know, you're right at the coalface with wood and sourcing wood. What, From your standpoint, what are you seeing? Yeah, we're seeing massive changes over the last six months in getting good timber. Uh, bourbon casts for one, taking forever to get here once you order. I think the last shipment of bourbon we ordered took six months to get here, where it normally takes six to seven weeks. Uh, they've gone up in price. My latest price I just got through, they've gone up uh, about $40 US per barrel, or Australian yeah. per barrel. Mm -hmm. uh, freight's gone up from... Uh, the last lot I got cost us about $13,000 for freight to Tassie. We're now looking at minimum 20000 could be more. So all in all, bourbon prices are going to go up by ninety to a hundred dollars per barrel. Yeah, right. Fortified wines getting very difficult to get. Getting good quality fortified wines is becoming very difficult. 
Yeah. Uh, the so much pressure being put on now by the the larger organisations, the Archie Roses, the Starwoods. Um, you know, that's with their volumes they're producing, they're all looking for really good quality barrels. So obviously, that's the demand is so great that's just pushing the prices up. And uh, and there's only a certain amount of them to go around, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. We're fairly fortunate because we're a small organisation. There's only the myself and my son Laurie, and my daughter yeah. and my wife, and my daughter-in-law. We sort of work in the workshop together, so we're not we don't require a real big volume. Yeah. But the prices are, are getting pretty pretty heavy. I was quoted today about seven hundred and fifty for uh, some nice. I think they're about seventy year old podcasts, but they're going to cost me about seven hundred and fifty dollars each. Mm, Plus, I've got right. to get them freighted in here. So yeah, yeah you, what we were selling a podcast for, like a, a quarter cast or one hundred twenty five liter, we were selling around about the nine hundred dollar mark six months ago. We're going to be looking at probably thirteen hundred to fourteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, and we won't touch anything unless it's good quality. We're not going to deal with any rubbish. Yeah, um, a lot of stuff out there that's been seasoned for a couple of years. Not interested in it. We want quality stuff. Yeah, we realise how much effort you, you guys put so much effort in, or the guys put so much effort into making a really good spirit. A lot of dollars goes into it. We want to make sure after the the four or five years that it's sitting in the castle, what they get out is is uh, is better than what they put in there. Mm. How does that? So, so with that, with that sort of a price increase, so this is probably more crafty than you guys, but with that sort of a price increase on the barrel itself, when and how much does that influence the bottle price? Will we see an increase in uh, in in bottle price in four or five years time, ten years time, or will that? Do you think that'll pass on sooner? A big unknown, really. It's, it's, um, I mean, I, I, I remember, uh, oh god, not that long ago, Tim Duckett, uh, was talking about, um, pricing, pricing of barrels, right? And, um, Tim Duckett, yeah, a few years ago said he was barrel banking, which basically means he was, he was buying barrels when he found good barrels and putting them away. And utilizing them when he needed to um, and we started to do it a little bit on a much much smaller scale um, but I remember Tim saying he can see the day where barrels will be fortifieds will be uh, 2,000 2,000 for a barrel and you go wow what does that actually do um, you know for the small guys like myself it's like yeah okay you've, you've got a barrel it's a very special barrel or two barrels or three barrels but when you're these, you're the big operations, and you mentioned the Archie Roses and the Starwoods and all that, that's a lot of dollars you're forking out for, for wood, isn't it? Mm. It's got to affect the price at some point. Yeah, abs absolutely. Uh, to what point and when? Who knows? But it, mm. it, it pushes the. It pushes the. I'd be interested to see what you think about this, Laurie and, and Dave. So it, in Australia, it's it's you got wine wood, right? And you got the likes of Starwood that use a lot of wine wood, right? Um, and a lot of times yeah. it's it's wet wood, um, so it's coming straight out of the, out of the out of the wineries and, and bang, it's it's been filled. So if you're seeing a a real push on on bourbon and you're seeing a real shortage of fortifieds, and it's going to get increasingly worse, do you think it's going to force more and more distillers to to work with uh, wine barrels 
and recoupered wine barrels or, or um, just wine barrels straight out, out of wineries. What do you think? Yeah, I think it'll go that way. It's going to have to. Uh, you've got to be pretty careful when you're selecting your wine barrels too. You want to make sure they're fresh, they're not sulphured. Yeah, they've got no VA. Um, so there's a lot of little traps you've got to watch out for when you're purchasing wine barrels. You can get caught. But yep. uh, if they're shaved out and toasted and uh, charred well, you're, you're getting some pretty good results. And we tried some nice Pinots down here that are and Shardies. Laurie's on a Shardie at the moment. They're from Hillwood. Very nice, yep. very nice whiskey. Uh, so yeah, there's and I think what a lot of people may do going forward as well is do a lot of finishing, like the smaller guys might put down in a a Pinot or a Shardy or a red wine of some sort yeah. for four or five years, then they might might be able to then afford to buy a, uh, a larger format, maybe a 200 or a 300 litre ex-fortified of good quality. Yep. Place two or three of their small barrels into that, finish them off for six months or more or whatever it takes. Yeah. And then re reuse that fortified again a second time mm. to get a second bit out of it. And yeah. just to add a bit of sweetness and a bit more character to those wines, uh, to the whiskies that have been in the wine barrel, I yeah. see that as being a possibility. And I also see a lot more second fills coming coming our way as well. We're doing a lot of um, shave toast and rechars uh, of hundred liters and yeah. huge minis and fifties for distilleries down here. So I think a lot of the small guys will go back into a lot more second fills. Yep. And if they're treated right, you get dang good results from them. Uh, yeah. Really good results. Okay, uh, is, some of them been for a while with their yeah. large formats, and they've got some okay. pretty good whiskies in the second build. You you touched on something which I'd like you to explain in, in in a bit more detail, if you wouldn't mind, because there's there's distillers out there um, who young distillers who wouldn't necessarily understand the, the side of it. And I think it's really important. So you talked about VA and you talked about sulfur and what does it mean from your standpoint when you're looking for barrels uh, from winemakers? What, what, what are the traps? What are you looking for? And you mentioned sulfur particularly. Just can you explain that to, to people out there? Laurie, Laurie, I'll give Laurie a chop at this one. He's, he's, the, he's the, <laughs> the nose man in our business. And go, Laurie, now. <laughs> yes. Um, so with, with the sulfur, especially if they've been sitting around, they've got like a sulfur citric acid solution sitting in them, um, you get some pretty pretty terrible notes coming off there. Um, you can get them steamed out by the winery before you purchase them um, and cleans them up quite a bit. Um, in terms of your VA, if they've, been, if they've been transported without a bung in them or you get, you get the wrong bacteria in there and you're you start the acidic fermentation and you're gonna you're gonna get that vinegar smell and even a hint of that can can cause some pretty big dramas from from reports that we've heard from different distillers who've had that in their car so we're every cast we're getting in pretty much nosing it really trying to make sure any sort of hint of that sulfur or vinegar or something like that you want to just put it aside and, and sell it for a, for a planter pot basically because it's not really worth the risk um getting those those notes in there so you want to really just make sure that you're checking that everything's fresh working in with a winery that you know a has good quality wine because we see that makes a massive difference as well um yeah. you get some of the barrels in where you can have two pinot casts one from a say a boutique winery that you know really looks after their wine barrels and you know doesn't sulfur and all of that sort of thing and then you can get sort of a more mass-produced cast when you're toasting them on the fire they're absolute chalk and cheese so 
Um, that selection of cast with wine barrels, I think, is pretty critical um, when it comes to that. And and they're not salvageable if they have that yeah, vinegar say, or whatever. Yeah. You, can't, you can't shave it out and toast and rechar and, and get make through it. Make it a heavy char. It's there. If they've, got, if they've got VA in it, you just burn them. They're no good. Yeah, we 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 try to stay away from it. Just we don't want to take the risk. You know, there's. I wouldn't say that you couldn't do it, but you know, I'd, uh, I wouldn't want to you know put a hundred liters of your guy's spirit on the line with it, sort of thing, for the sake of a wine cast. Um, yeah. With the sulfur, you can generally, if you're working well with the winery, the the winery will uh, barrel wash them with steam or hot water. And that yeah. will generally get rid of most of the sulfur out of it. But yeah. um, if it's been in there a long time and it's gone a little bit rank, you won't get rid of it. It's, it's just if, if they've maintained the sulfur, if it's been looked after, the barrel's been looked after, you can generally yeah. get rid of it. Mm. But um, the VA, I just don't like it at all. Yeah. I guess that, that, that represents a pretty big risk for you, doesn't it, in getting all these barrels that there's... Yes the possibility that there's a, a, a couple of bodgy ones in the in the batch. And if you're having to buy them for that much money, wow. Well talking about talking about barrel banking, one of the one of the guys down here, one of the older distilleries down here I was talking to the other week and he had some uh, he bought some nice fortifies and had them banked up in South Australia and uh, he had them turned into he got eight turned into one hundreds for him and sent down. And five of them were VA. Mm. So he rang me up and said, what can we do with them, Dave? And I just said, mate, no good. Get rid of them. So uh, it's, wow. it's a lot of money, a lot of time. It's yeah. a lot of effort. So you, even if you're banking them, you've got to be really careful how you store it. You just don't buy them and stick them in the shed and forget about them. How, do you, how do you bank a barrel? How do you maintain a barrel? Yeah, yeah. before you actually fill it. If it's a wine barrel or if it's a, a um, even a fortified wine barrel, you always make sure the bung's in it all the time. So keep yep. it sealed. Yep. Um, and, yeah, keep it out the weather. Don't have them sitting out in the rain, getting water in them. Um, and quite often we'll break them down. If we break them down, we, we uh, dry them right out. Sometimes we'll pressure wash them to get rid of any residue off them. And then yep. we'll strip them out, dry them out. And you just got to keep an eye on them. And uh, we don't try and bank too much stock. We, we try and keep a reasonable amount ahead of us, but we don't try and uh, have massive amounts in front of us. Because if, mm. if you leave moisture in them, they'll go mouldy, and the mould's another issue. You get that mould in there, you'll, you'll throw a whole new dimension of horribleness into, the, into your whiskey. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, you just, you, timber's a real... You've really got to look after it. Um, mm. It's a very valuable resource very hard to come by and you've really got to nurture it yeah right so with okay, the I've got a question. hang on luke i just want to get this one quickly while it's fresh in my head so i've i've got old wood picks sherry casks uh out of, out of spain right and whenever yeah. they've arrived they've always had a couple of liters of sherry in them and yeah. when you pop, pop the bungs they smell beautiful and yeah. they um, to date, I've not had a leaker. I've not had uh, any issues with, with or flavours and that. So they are wet, but they're wet with fortified. They're not wet with water. Yeah. Um, so in, in your in your opinion, your experience, that's the way. If you're going to bring barrels in like that, that's the way you want to bring in 
some residual, whatever the original liquid is, fortified in the barrel, don't you? Yeah, I'd say so. And then make sure that when you do get them, if you take the bung out to have a nose for it, that you put the bung in and seal it back off nice and tight. You don't want to get that air in there that's going to create any oxidization or any... That's when you start to run into problems. So make sure they're sealed, kept sealed all the time. And don't go over buying. That's the biggest problem I see most distillers do. Uh, And we've... uh, They'll they'll buy big volumes so that they don't... uh, They might buy them a bit cheaper or they... But they're looking ahead, but you don't want barrels laying around with a little bit of moisture in them uh, for a long period of time because they're going to dry out. You're going to have issues with them. So we so always encourage them as just to buy. We'd sooner supply you with two barrels a week rather than supply you with 20 barrels. It's going to last you 10 weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's the freshness of the wood. Um, I've had experience with, with imported barrels, um, like what I said about those sherry barrels, and... A lot of them, uh, the bungholes holes stay, cracks after a period of time. It's 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 ro- it's not it's not in the direction of the of the grain. It's it's against it, and yeah. yeah, across it, and they all do it. Why? Just a weak point of your barrel. Your bung staves your weak point because you're cutting most of your stave your, your timber away. Yeah, uh, a lot of pressure in timber. Hell of a lot of pressure when you uh, when you swell them up. And the, if there's, if there's a weak point there, it'll find it out and they'll just crack through your bung stay. Um, yeah. Not much you can do about it. Yeah. You're usually pretty fortunate with your bung stay because you're not going to lose anything out of it. You don't want it at the yeah. bottom. Yeah. You, uh, you'll just <laughs> you drop all your contents. Yeah, that's no, true. Uh, let's talk about you guys, eh? Uh, we sort of got quite into, into wood really quickly because we got a lot of questions. Uh, we did the same with Youngy with Y and Oak. You know, we, we hit him up with a lot of questions and a lot of people want to know these, these, this bit of information, but who is Transwood? Where did they come from? And I know you started in Queensland and you're, you're in Tasmania. What's the story? Okay. Um, we moved down here three weeks, uh, three years ago next Thursday since we arrived wow. in Tassie. Um, my history is Bundy Rum. Uh, started my apprenticeship there in November 1970, so coming up the 52 years in the trade. Um, Mainly up in Bundy, working on uh, their vats. Most, I don't know if any of you have been through Bundy, but Bundy matures all their product or most of their product in large vats, uh, up to 75,000 litres. So we were doing, building them, maintaining them, uh, and also any small casts they had. uh, We were also doing maintenance on them and keeping them running. So... Uh, we also had a tourist attraction up there where we were making, we started in 1982. Uh, so I worked for Bundy Rump for about 10 or 12 years. Then I, we started our own business in 82, mainly catering to tourists, making small casts. So from one litre through to about 20 or 40 litre. Yeah. Um, we trained five, I've trained five apprentices in that time, Laurie being the last. And um, yeah, and uh, we've, we've, Always maintain a relationship with Bundy Rum. We've done a lot of their work for them. Uh, and uh, we got an order from Timmy Ducker back in 2018, I think it was, right. for 16 barrels, 1,600 litre barrels, 1,600 litre barrels, I'm sorry. And uh, so we, Laurie and I made them in our workshop. And I said to Laurie one day, why don't we jump in the car and deliver them, have a look at Tassie? So we did that. We drove down three days to get down here went and seen tim 
really enjoyed what we've seen down here, loved the place. And uh, we said to Tim, you know, what do you think there's thoughts on us moving down here? Be any, any chance for us making a living down here? And he said, shit, yeah, mate. He said, uh, go and see the Adams boys up at Perth near Launceston. They're going places. They've got some stuff happening up there. And so we went and seen uh, Adam Pinkard and had some talks with them. And uh, yeah, they built us a shed. And we moved down here in the 24th of February, 2019, and enjoying wow. every minute of it. Love the yeah. place. Nice. Much, much more fun working over a fire in Tasmania than it is in Queensland. <laughs> I'll bet. <laughs> and Laurie, how long, how long have you been in the game, mate? So you did your apprenticeship with your dad. And yes. what happened after that? Yeah. Um, so I started my sentence about 14 years ago. Um, when I was 14 years old, um, so school wasn't for me, so I thought I'll go and do something else. So uh, the opportunity came up. They were quite busy at the time with the rum bats, so I, I jumped in in the cooperage with the old man and did my first apprenticeship there. So I was finished that by the time I was about 18. Um, so I went off and I wanted to do a carpentry apprenticeship as well. So I went and did that for a few years and, and naturally came back to coopering. Um, and I've been doing it pretty much since then. So I, I started up a little business on the Sunshine Coast, um, doing a lot of small casts, so, uh, sort of like what Dad was doing for many years. And I used to do the Monday markets there, so had it pretty casual, had a little shed in on the highway at the Sunshine Coast and work a few days a week there, do the markets on the weekends and sell a few casts to tourists and things like that. And, um, yeah, when the opportunity came up to come down here, I jumped on board and, yeah, it's been a, been a great move. Mm. It's, it's really cool. It would certainly be a uh, a temperature change, yes, from uh, slaving away over a fire in Queensland to uh, relative cool in some of the coldest place, one of the coldest places I've ever been in Tassie. It'd be uh, yeah. quite a sea change. It's much more pleasant. Um, we get get a couple of months of the year where you get a few warm days, but. You don't get the humidity or the you know the, the long stretches of hot weather you can put up with it for a you know half a week or something and you get a bit of relief there with you know max of 22 and stuff like that which is pretty good we don't miss walking into a, a bond store at bundy rum at seven o'clock in the morning and just standing there and sweating yeah, no. <laughs> and then you start sweating and then by smoke you're taking the socks off the ring them out because they're full of water uh, it's, yeah, don't miss that don't, i don't like sweating bit. at the best of times <laughs> it would actually it would actually be atmospheric rum wouldn't it with the evaporation that's coming off we've got a question from the audience yeah we had a couple of comments the screen. Yep, go uh, for it. what made you decide to be a cooper me uh i back in the day we uh, last we only went to grade 10 we weren't that it that intelligent back then, so we only went as far as grade 10, but you couldn't make it to 12. So we uh, put, in, I put my name down at the old Commonwealth Employment Service halfway through year grade 10. Said I was interested in anything to do with timber, thinking carpentry, cabinet making or something like that. And uh, in September, I got a, a telegram from uh, the CEO saying, uh, from the Commonwealth Employment Service saying there was a job going as an apprentice cooper at Bundy Rum. So I said to Dad, what's a cooper? And Dad said, I don't know, mate. So I asked everyone in the neighbourhood and I couldn't get an answer. No one knew what a cooper was. So I went over for the interview, found out what a cooper was, got the job, fell in love with it. 
been doing it ever since. Um, wow. How many barrels do you reckon you've made? I don't want to even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of the bloody things. <laughs> That's why we've been, one of the great parts about moving down here to Tassie is it's, it's reinvigorated everything, really, because the whiskey industry is so different to working in rum and working with souvenir casks. It's, it's yeah. so involved. And uh, just learning everything about it. And I'm finding I'm learning a lot of stuff off my son here now because he's modern age where he'll go on. He'll, if he wants to know something, he'll Google it and he'll get the answers. Uh, he won't just look at one answer. He'll go through and uh, siphon out what's fact and what bullshit out of half a dozen different posts or whatever. And so he's he's gaining a lot of knowledge by doing that. And I go and ask him stuff now because he knows a lot more about that sort of gear than me. When it comes down to like toasting a barrel and, and charring barrels, that's a, that's really, really important part of making a keg. It's the most important part of making a keg, I believe, is actually the toasting of your barrel. Yeah. And that's where Laurie really excels. He's got that down to a fine art. And yeah. uh, So you enjoy playing with fire? Yeah. <laughs> that's a short answer, yeah. Oh, yeah, lovely. Yeah. Let's, Not real good when they put fire bands on, though. It's a bit, a bit yeah, awkward. we get visits from the rural fire brigade occasionally. Wonder what we sort of just, just, just checking, make sure there's things like smoking and over our building. I think something's going wrong. <laughs> I'd like to talk about toast and char because uh, they are two totally different things, right? Yes. And you know, you, you often hear in the whiskey industry, uh, it's all about char. It's all about char. It's all about char. But we know in the industry, people know that, no, it's not just about char. It's toast and char. And the, the nuances of the whiskey can be developed through selection of toast and char. So, Laurie, can you explain to people, in your terms, what is the difference of toast and char and what is the importance of toast and char? And then I want to talk about shave toast and rechar. So it's, it's SDR um, uh, thing, Dr. Dr. Swan. So over to you, mate. Yeah, so the main difference between toasting and charring is basically your toasting is a, a prolonged radiant heat uh, causing chemical reactions in the timber from the heat, um, caramelise a lot of the natural sugars in the timber as well as a lot of the sugars in the timber from the previous fill. Um, because we are working a lot of fortified casts, you're working with pretty high sugar content stuff. So um, you, you're basically the best way to look at your toast is you're creating a layer through the inside of your stave, typically of about three to four millimetres, which is a, a an, an extra layer of flavour, which will add a layer of complexity to your whiskey that you would other, wouldn't otherwise get. Um, so your whiskey is obviously going to go beyond that into that seasoned wood anyway, and, and in most cases we'll actually go past that into virgin wood as well. So it's like an extra layer of flavour. Um, yep. It it it, um, it differs from the char in the way that the char is a it's a really fast heat, and you're actually igniting the interior surface of the cast and yeah. putting that layer of carbon on there, which is a, an extractive layer, which cleans up the spirit, so it'll strip out a lot of the salters and the volatiles uh, as the spirit moves through into the wood and then back out of the wood. Mm. So, so you're going to see a lot of different flavours coming out depending on whether it's a toast or a char. Yep. Do you have a preference? Yes. 
Um, probably the toasting. The toasting is definitely the most exciting um, because we're working such a variety of different, you know, different oak types, different different pre-fill types, different moisture contents in the wood that we're working them. Uh, we try to get them down to, you know, a, an optimal moisture content, but there is always variables in what we're doing. Um, and every cask is different. So it's mm. it's not like, you, you know, in a, in a large wine barrel cooperage where, you know, they've really got that down to a finite and the winemaker knows what they're expecting from that cooper in terms of a toast. Um, we're sort of not working with that same profile where you know at what temperature um, you're going to get certain chemical reactions to create certain flavours. We have that to a certain extent, but we're also working, you know, with so many different things that we try and box it into a set of characteristics more than try and, you know, nail it right down like that. So with like a light toast, for instance, where we're looking at putting enough heat back into the timber after we bend it to set the cask into shape without affecting the flavour too much. With a medium toast, we're focusing on that, you know, impression of sweetness. It's kind of like walking into someone baking a batch of cookies or uh, you mm. get like banana bread with a Jack Daniel cask or blueberry muffins with a pork cask. It's that sort of aroma. Then with yeah. a heavy toast, you get into the really spicy end where you're pulling out those, you know, clove with your French oak and coconut with your American oak and a lot of smoky flavours and things like that. Um, and then with your char, it kind of is a completely different thing. Again, once you nose the cask, you get those aromas come out, but you tend to get more of the, the spicy, intense aromas coming through once it's fully been ignited. Mm. Mate, that is, that is such a, an articulate, easy way you've just described it. it it's, mm. yeah. It's Mate, a that was, seriously, that was, Yeah, that <laughs> well, was, that was, it's an art form to, to finish it. Round of applause. Now, I've just, I've just uh, thoughts popped in my head as you've said all that, and I've never actually thought of it this way before. So effectively, when you char a barrel, you're actually seal, not sealing as such, but you're you're covering the toast, and and yes. you've got the so you're sandwiching the toast into the into the barrel. So yeah, exactly. Exact, and I've never actually made that connection that yeah the, the toast and the char the char is, is sandwiched it okay yep. you've got a, a huge surface area and and obviously the spirit can penetrate but you're sealing you are sealing in that that toast that's that's uh yeah i'm having a bit of a moment here mm. so. <laughs> it just it does we, we, also, we also think it's very important to shave out before you your toast or char as well so okay uh, Explain. Uh, we, yeah, so we'll, with a X-Fortified, we make sure we take off about a mil of, of timber off the inside, get rid of all the tartrate that's been left behind or the residue. As we find, if you leave that in there, you create a lot of bitter notes. If you burn, burn sugar, it goes bitter. Mm. So yeah. we make sure we get rid of that. We Shavings, the three things that are important, or the two most important things we believe in making in keg is you, you got to shave them out correctly. And then you must toast. The toasting is the big one. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what's going to give you complexity of flavour. And then your char is also important. Do that filtration at the end of it all. Do you find uh, with uh, most of your customers, particularly your Tassie distillers, are they all sort of going for the same sort of toast level, char level? Or you got some that are going, no, just I want alligator all the way. And others are going, no, I want a much lighter um, char. They're becoming a lot more educated now, I think. Yeah. Um, they're starting to learn 
that you can make a difference to your whiskey by doing different toastings and different chars to them. Yeah. So I would say 60% would be just saying you just makes a barrel, where the other 40% are being very particular of what they want. And I see that getting more and more so as time goes by. It's like a winemaker. You go to a winemaker and say, you know, ask them what's the two most important things with the barrel. And they'll say the origin of the timber and the toasting. Yeah, yeah. And they'll, they'll buy barrels from a particular cooperage all the time because they know that their toasting suits their style of wine. So uh, yeah, right. very important. So Jim Vella on Facebook has said, uh, do you shave ex-bourbon and rum barrels? Yes. Shave everything. With, with the bourbons? Rechar um, bourbon barrels? Yeah, yeah. So with if, if it's just going out straight fit for fill, um, they can go out and be filled right away. Um, if they're requested to be retoasted and recharred, um, unless it's like a Jack Daniel or something like that where they have been toasted before, we'll actually get the hollowing knife and take out about a mil or two mil just to get back into a bit of fresh wood that hasn't been affected by the heat. But most of your stuff, you work in your, your Heaven Hill and stuff like that, um, pretty much just a like a wire wheel basically goes around and takes takes the carbon off plus about a mil of timber, give or take. Um, and that allows us then to give it a good toast and then completely rechar again on top of that. And the same with a rum cask. Uh, anything that was previously charred will pretty much get the wire brush treatment unless it's been toasted previously. Wow. Okay. What about wine barrels? I, I've had experience, and I know other distillers have had experience where they've, they've sourced the wine barrel. Uh, it's gone to the cooperage, and the cooper has rung up and said, "Mate, staves are too thin. I can't work mm -hmm. with this wood." Do you do you encounter that? And, and if you do, what's what's the reason for the thin staves? With your typically, um, if if the cask hasn't been shaved. Uh, we don't see a lot of that here in Tassie because there hasn't been a lot of that going on, you know, shaving of wine barrels, but you might see it quite a bit more with wine casts coming out of Vic and SA um, yeah. where there's been guys doing shave outs, which is great for the wine. But once we get it to, to turn into whiskey, if we're going to want to take another mil or two mil off that, you know, you can be getting down to sort of 18, 19 mil, which is no good, particularly when you're putting heat back in and toasting and stuff like that. Um, but if you if you see like your your Bordeaux casts, like your Cabernet barrels and stuff like that from France, where they have the the crossboards in the head with the wedges in them, that's yep. typically an indication that it's a, a 21 mil stave instead of a 27 mil. Um, so that's that's typically your dead giveaway. If you see the crossboard in there, um, probably a good thing to avoid. Um, that's not to say that you can't rework them, but you you. It's significantly decreasing the life of the cask and and you know, increasing the chance that you're going to have problems with it you know, in terms of broken staves and things like that down the line. All right. Okay. Now let's talk about a project that I've got with you guys and walk me through it. How you will approach this project? I'm fascinated. So I got a bourbon barrel and I got an ex Samaro uh, barrel, which was. Uh, originally a bourbon barrel, and they're both American oak. So you've got those two barrels, and the plan is to make, if possible, two bourbon slash Amaro barrels out of the, out of those two barrels. How do you approach a project like that? In what way? Uh, just walk me through the process. So they're so they're two bourbon barrels. They're, yep. they're different bourbon barrels. One's had Amaro in. So obviously that's yep. going to have an impact on the wood in that. Um, what are you looking at? So you break it down to staves 
and yep. and headwoods, and you look at the wood, and then how will you marry the bourbon with the with the amaro? Is there a, a way you, you'll approach that, or is it just you look at individual staves? Yeah, we'll we'll um, that's, you want them both combined into combine the timbers into into the barrels. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll just lay it all out. We'll dock them to length, uh, lay it all out, see what we've got. And yep. then we'll just come and blend 50-50 of yep. those timbers uh, to create the two different barrels. Yep. Um, we then rejoint everything. We always add a bit of bilge to our barrels. So a bourbon barrel, as you'd be aware, is very, very straight. So yep. we rejoin everything and add bilge to it. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll shave them out before we rise them up, raise them up. So we'll shave it all out, raise it up, and then go through the process of, of bending, toasting, charring, and uh, working through it that way. Yep. And then the heads will probably do uh, uh, one of each uh, in, in the heads, uh, put one, one bourbon, one amara in, in one, and likewise in the other. Why do you put uh, the, the bilge in it? Just makes a better looking cask. It makes them easier to set to or to, to shape up. With a bourbon cask, they're real mongrel things. They have. You can have three different bilges in the one cask. Uh, they'll right. vary quite dramatically. So if you just try and stand it straight back up again, you have trouble getting everything to line up. Like you'll have staves in and out because you'll have three-eighths of an inch difference or 10 mil difference in bilges in them or bends yep. in them. Uh, yep. So by adding a little bit of bilge, when you, when you raise it up, we just raise it up with three hoops on the one end and it's like an upside-down bucket, basically. And you'll have some staves that are nearly got the right shape others will be very straight so then when you put it over the fire and heat it up when we start to draw it in we can then panel beat everything into shape so we'll end up with a nice uniform barrel uh, whereas if you try and do that with without heating it up and and uh yeah rebending it it's it's a nightmare it's very difficult plus you end up with something that looks very similar to a pipe very straight no no, no character to it and it makes it makes it really hard to work on too if they're quite straight. You know, you you can spend six months trying to get a hoop down onto a bilge on a really straight bourbon barrel. Um, you put that little bit more bilge in. There is a line too. If you put too much bilge in, they can they can be a, as big a pain in the bum. But um, you get that nice shape. It it helps with racking for the distillers as well. We see a lot of ladder racking, particularly down here in Tassie. If you get a nice, even, consistent bilge all the way through, everything racks up pretty good. And, um, yeah, seems seems to be the way to go, and it's going on the fire anyway. So we may as well, while we're warming it up, get in there, get it all smooth. We we don't sand our barrels on a big sanding machine. We we, we literally just stripe the joints with a spoke shave. So the closer we can get it on the fire, the the easier it is for us down the track to to get it all looking good and, and nice and round. Basically, we're pretty lazy, and we try and make it as easy as we can for ourselves. Pretty much, yeah. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You you are you are explaining the craft of what you do, guys. And you know, as distillers, and distillers just means distillers. But you know, you know, we do a lot more than just distill. But distillers, the relationship they have with Coopers, uh, in my opinion and other people's opinions, is absolutely fundamental to how successful we are as making whiskey. Mm -hmm. And. Yep. It's not a case of just putting an order in and getting a barrel and that's it. It's the, it's it's all about the barrel. It's understanding the barrel and it's the education and the training that we as distillers need uh, to manage our wood when it's in our sheds. 
and you provide that, which is awesome. Mm. So, we'd like to in the future. We'd like to do a little bit of um, what's the word? education in the way of, especially with distillers, um, give them a little bit of insight on what's required in maintaining barrels, selecting barrels. Uh, oh man, he's taking all yeah. my questions. Yeah, barrel selection. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. I think it's the next step. Uh, I really do. Um, I agree. I agree. It's so important. So that they're more self-sufficient. If you buy a barrel and you get it into your bond store and you fill it up and it starts leaking or it's not performing like it should do, you want to be able to have a look at it and try and try and be able to rectify those problems yourself. Yeah. Um, if it's if it's serious, if it's the Cooper's fault, well, obviously you got to give them a kick in the ass. But uh, but um, yeah, if it's something simple that you can rectify yourself, I think it's going to be a a uh, a big step forward to do that. Um, and that's something we'd like to see happen going forward is, is a, a bit of yeah. training in that field. Yeah. Mm. yeah there's, a, there's a few Coopers that are saying the same thing, um, that, yeah, it's it's the next stage and it's, it's important. Uh, and I think you'll find, if you talk to, to distillers, they're, they're very receptive to it because they realise that. Yeah, the, the, the barrel is, is so important. You know, it, it contributes a big amount to, uh, to the flavour of the whiskey. But not only that, it's a holding vessel. So mm-hmm. after all your hard work, if you have a leaky barrel, mm. it's not good. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't like walking into a bond store and seeing one of our barrels with a leak in it. I don't, I don't like that. Uh, no. no, I'm sure you don't. I'm sure you don't. Unfortunately, so, <laughs> so we've had a question come through from uh, Mark of Snowy Mountain Spirits there. Um, hi, guys. It seems there's a movement away from small casks. Uh, are you seeing this as well? Yeah. We've, we've now, in the last couple of months, have adopted the policy that we're no longer doing anything under 50 litre. Yep. Um, main couple of reasons. One, game we're a bit lazy. We don't want to make them anymore. Uh, and two, I think it's... I can understand why distillers do it, why they go into small casks. They've got, they're outlaying so much money and they need to get a return on that money as quick as they can. So obviously you put it in a smaller cask, you're going to get a quick turnaround. But yeah. not necessarily are you going to get a really high quality whiskey. So we, we, we'd soon see people put stuff down in a minimum of 100 litre, yep. take a little bit more time uh, and end up with a better product at the end of the day. We're not starting off in 20s and then you've got to uh, put out a product that is okay but not quite there and then in six years time seven years time you start bringing out your hundreds you've got a whole totally different profile product coming through you've got to re-educate it so I, if it can be afforded i reckon you start off with as big a format as you possibly can and go from there rather than going to a small format yeah okay sorry i'm a crazy distiller i come to you and i go mate I want to build a barrel and I want you to make it in French oak and American oak. What do you say? What do you do? Um, well, it depends. It depends on the oak itself. So if you come with a like a, a really fine-grained Chardonnay cask or something like that that's, that's very soft, very slow-growing, and then you want to mix that with a really, really coarse-grained American oak, I'd probably say no. Um, yeah. 
even if you do mix those in evenly around the cask, you're mixing a lot of hard and soft, which structurally can cause a lot of problems. It's not to say that it will 100%, but I wouldn't really back it. Um, if you can kind of get some finer-grained American oak, something grown a little bit further north, um, and like a, a, a limousine oak or something like that, which is a slightly different species to your typical French oak, it's quite a bit coarser grain. You can definitely match those together without any any problem at all. But they're... It can be done, but you can also run into issues if you don't match your coarseness of your grain or your finest of your grain up properly. And with with French oak, uh, my understanding is you basically you, you can't run it through the bandsaw like you can with, with American oak. It, it, it has to be axed. Is that true or is that just a, 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 an urban myth? Like when, when they're milling the timber? When they're milling the timber, yeah. Yeah, so, so they actually do split it. Um, the main reason being is is if you if you imagine you know your your log like that, um, yep. you're back basically breaking it into quarters and then eighths. Um, the reason for that is they they split it along those rays that uh, dissect it into those quarters. Um, right. The main reason is they're actually porous. So there's a process that oak goes through after about seventy years, which is called tylosis. And in those lines, which are called your medullary rays, there's a little balloon that forms, which which prevents that from becoming as porous as what it otherwise would be. Um, it happens to a lesser extent in French oak. And because of that, they actually have to cut it perfectly along those so that when you look at the end of the cast, those rays are actually running all the way around the circumference. You don't want a part of that ray directed towards the inside pointing towards the outside because that can actually act as a rip and... and cause the spirit to come out of the cast. Um, with American oak, they will saw the timber. So with sawing, you get slightly less waste, but you, you do also get a little bit of grain that typically you won't want to see it any more than 45 degrees. Um, but that's that's the main reason that makes sense. No, 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 no that, that makes sense. Another question that we often hear is, I'm using European oak. Uh, no, I'm using French oak. What is the difference? Uh, basically, French oak just has the name of French oak with the whole terroir or whatever you want to call it. It's just got it's grown in that region, so it's French oak. It comes out of the wine industry. And um, I was speaking to a, a bloke the other day. Actually, he was a Hungarian cooper, and, and he said that the, the oak can't speak French or Hungarian, so it's, so it's the same thing. So you can get you can get Quercus petraea out of Vosges or Tronso in France, and you can get Quercus petraea out of one of the high forests in Hungary, and it's just, it's essentially the same thing. But same uh, when you get down, same species, you, you basically have your two species that you see out of Europe, which is Quercus petraea, which yep. is what's typically known as French oak, um, excepting you know limousine oak, which is the other species, which is called Quercus rubur, which is you see a, a, quite a bit of that out of Hungary. Uh, you stuff out of Spain is typically Quercus rubur, um, yep. and it's 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 typically a coarser grained oak. Uh, similar, more similar to American oak, um, yeah. Yeah, right. But, yeah, Mate, same, same, same species, just different regions. This is a deep, deep dive, guys. <laughs> and now we're in a deep dive. We're going to take a pause because it's the time. He's waiting patiently. We've taken all his questions away. So, Microwave. and now it's time for throw the tot under the bus. And now it's Todd's time to ask him some questions. 
<laughs> okay, so I'm a I'm a new distiller and I've just um, bought my first lot of barrels from all over the place. When when they get to the shed, what should I be looking for to to just check that they're okay before I fill them up? Um, make sure that probably check around the heads first. So you want to check the joins in your heads first and foremost, and the joins around the staves where the head meets in, because uh, they're going to be the first parts that that shrink. So if they've shrunk, there's a good chance that your hoops are going to be loose. So you're going to want to get the hammer and driver out and, and harden the hoops up. Um, should that not be sufficient, you're probably going to have to look at putting a bit of hot water in there, um, probably five litres, 10 litres, depending on the size of the cask end for end it until it swells up and if that doesn't work then you're going to have to send it to the cooper and get it fixed up cool mm. and should i store my barrels outside beside an old um railway sleeper <laughs> it's loaded with boring <laughs> <laughs> not if not if you don't want holes all through it <laughs> and yes we've done that and yes okay. did I just <laughs> I was about to say that's from experience, isn't it? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> not my not my personal experience, but someone else I know closely. <laughs> yeah, okay. It, yeah. It, was, it was like someone had taken a drill bit to the barrel. There was holes, seriously, holes that big in it, and the beetle, the borer beetle, was about that big. <laughs> it was, it was uh, yeah. So those those barrels apparently. Um, are now called sacrificial barrels to the borer. You just mm -hmm. an offering, <laughs> an offering to the borer gods. Sadly, they were quite nice barrels too. But anyway, oh, I don't have those anymore. <laughs> Any more questions? Yeah, yeah. What's what's the most unique barrel that you've been asked to um or you've been commissioned to make? Hmm. Actually, probably the most unique one it would be the um. Oh, we've done an egg. We did an egg for Adams. That was a, that was a bit of a, a brainwave I had. I thought I'd give it a go, and it'll be the first and last time. Um, <laughs> and and um, we we actually had a uh, good friends of ours up in Queensland have a, a, a winery inside a house, and and they made some. They had a they had a farm in Childers where they grew a heap of jabotacaba, which is a Brazilian fruit. And if, if you look up the a photo of the tree, they're a pretty wild-looking thing, and, and it's it's essentially like a grape, but it actually grows on the trunk and the, the limbs of the tree. Um, it's a really bizarre-looking thing, and, and they had a heap of those, and they made some port out of the jabotacaba. So they had an old jabotacaba port barrel, which we've we've made up into a cask, and we're planning to find some spirit to fill in it ourselves just for something a little bit different. That's probably the mm. probably the most left to field in terms of previous filament. Yep. Yeah. Mm. What about hardwoods? Do you get much call for working with hardwoods at all? No, nah, not really. Woods? Is it hard? Yeah, probably, probably a bit lazy for that as well, I reckon. <laughs> it's porous and it's hard. We do a lot of stuff with hand tools, so it's it's probably a little bit too gnarly on the tools and, you know, um, and, and yeah, I've not personally tasted anything out of a hardwood cast, but we hear mixed reviews from it. So if I tasted something and I really liked it, then that would probably peak, peak a bit of interest and, and make me more willing to have a crack at it. But um, yeah, until then, probably no. Nah. Really so given what we were talking about 
at the start of our, our chat with the, the wood shortage. Um, do you think that's going to uh, drive the use of other non-oak timbers? More Australian, uh, Australian-based timbers. Uh, we've got the backwards uh, red gum, uh, red gum cask whiskey that's come out. Do you think that's going to become more prominent? I can't see it. I can't see it happening. Uh, I think they'll go to use. They'll, yeah, they'll keep on. I think instead of doing that, you you'd be better off going second and third fill. Mm -hmm. uh, Get more, get more life out of your cask and maybe do a bit of seasoning in between. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, you've got to have a few things in your timber to make it work for a barrel. It's got to be able to bend for a starter. Not all timbers will bend. Uh, it needs to be non-porous. A lot of timbers, you fill it up and the alcohol will go straight through it. And it's got to give a flavour. It's got to give a flavour that's going to enhance what you put in it, not detract from it. Mm. Um we see a little bit of blackwood come through. Um, blackwood. blackwood was, yeah, blackwood was used quite a few years ago for beer barrels and for fermenters and stuff like that. Because it does bend very good. The yeah. bending timber quite, quite tough. Um, a lot of old port barrels we get have been repaired, and, and some of the staves they've been repaired with have been blackwood. Um, right. I've never heard of blackwood. So, okay. Yep. Uh, what sort of flavour profile? Pretty common, pretty, pretty common stuff that's been made in around the 70s, 60s and yeah. 70s, you see it. Yeah, it's yeah. not every barrel. You get it uh, probably one in every 20 will see a Blackwood stave out of a barrel of that, of that age. Mm. Never seen one that's totally Blackwood, but we see them with replacements. They've obviously had staves replaced and have been replaced with Blackwood. Right. What wow. sort of flavour profile would, would black? because I don't know it, uh, what, what, you it's, say very very, it's very yeah. high in tannins, even more higher than uh, American oak. So you will pull a lot of, yeah, a lot of bitter uh, flavours through your uh, your drink, your, your whiskey. Yeah, beer, right. All your beer barrels back in the day were made from a lot of them. They were made either out of uh, American oak, uh, mountain ash, or Tassie blackwood, and Western Australian she oak. Uh, but a beer barrel, the old beer barrels, if you had in the that up in the bar and the pub, they were all pitch lined. So there were mm. special brewer's pitch they were coated with internally. So your beer never actually come in contact with the wood, so you weren't pulling any of those flavours out of your timber. Yeah, right. So there was all backwood, Western Australian sheoak used in those fellas. I've even seen some, uh, a lot of the heads were um, rosewood from New South Wales, northern New South Wales. And you know how, I don't know if you had anything to do with that, but it's very, very aromatic. Right. Uh, so, uh, but they were good timbers to work, plenty plentiful, and they used that stuff. Mm. And uh, Jim Bella on Facebook yeah. is asking about sisal oak. Yeah, that's that's your Quercus petraea. So there, there you'll hear um, sisal oak and pedunculate oak, and it's it's referring to the acorn and the leaf. It's the way that the acorn grows. The pedunculate oak has like a little stem on the acorn. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah, sisal oak's your um, Quercus petraea. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Just a I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, you learned something today. Something <laughs> new every day. We had a comment from uh, Tim Boone, Josh, Josh Walker earlier in the piece. What What was his comment? It, it was something about a new Cooper. What was that about? Uh, Josh. Oh, yeah. 
Heard you had a new Cooper in the shed today. What <laughs> would you rate him out of 10? Yeah, he wants to know. I reckon he's a, he's a seven approaching an eight. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> no, he's, he's, we've had Heath in for the last couple of days um, doing a little bit of training and uh, working in with us and sort of showing him a little bit how we do things in, in our Cooperage. And uh, it's, been, it's been really good, good experience having him in there. And yeah. Uh, one of the cool things about uh, my experiences with the Cooper is that, that, that I work with, like yourselves and, and, and others, um, is the level of transparency, right? So as distillers, various distillers have various degrees of transparency. But what I find with Cooper is they all seem to have a very high level of transparency. Um, it's because you guys, you want to help us because we can help ourselves, isn't it? The more we understand about wood, the better it is for you guys. Yeah, you, we get pretty passionate about it because we, we know how much effort, as I said before, we know how much effort you guys and expense you guys put into producing a nice clean spirit and you want to get results at the end of the day. So we're driven a lot by that, by that fact that we want to make sure that in three, five, ten, whatever years' time, that when you take that product out of the barrel, you're going to say, wow, that's good shit. We don't want you to screw your nose up and come looking for us and take our head off. Uh, a <laughs> little bit of self-preservation involved there as yeah. well. Uh, but uh, so that's that's one. Uh, that's that's a driving factor for us in a big yeah. uh, in a big way. Um, yeah. And so we get a lot of satisfaction. We work with a lot of small guys. Some of the guys that we're we're dealing with. Uh, We've been making, we've made all their casts since they've opened up. They sort of started up around the same time as us or after we've arrived. So it's it's great walking into a, into a distillery and the guys come in, oh, come and have a case of this, Dave. This one's a cracker. Uh, you know, and it's, it gives you a hell of a buzz um, to know that you're producing something that's really good. And um, uh, it's satisfying. Very I got a couple of your casks, uh, the original rum casks I, I filled. Um, they're getting pretty close to drawing a sample, mate. So uh, yeah, I'll get something down to you, let you know how old it is. Sounds, and, uh, sounds good. Get, get dead keen to taste it, I tell you, because they were just incredible aromatics on the nose when we filled oh, them, yeah. and just the empty barrels was just rich, just rich dense flavors and. Uh, yeah, pretty exciting. They were, the, they were the barrels that we got when we got the Adams barrel? Yes, they were. Yeah, remember, Dave, you dropped it off? You and Pam yep. dropped yeah, it off. Yeah, we called in. And you yeah, bought that was back then. Three years ago. Yeah, they were fantastic smelling. It was November 19. Yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know, don't know the backstory, I filled a little 20-litre um, uh, cask with the Adams, uh, yeah, way back when, when I started. And it was sitting in Tasmania, and I'm going, Jesus, how am I going to get it up here? Um, it was ready, and it was like sitting in the cask, and how am I going to get it up here? Uh, and so uh, Dave and Pam kindly brought my barrel up when they delivered my uh, rum casks that they dropped off. So, and then you That'd went off to Black Snake. Those... Sorry? I said, then you went off to Black Snake in Narrabri. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So you're going to say, no, then we went to Coffs Harbour. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> wow. Then we went to Bundaberg. We, we done a real zigzag across New South Wales that trip. That was fun. That's a fair wow. chunk of the country. Yeah. <laughs> you must yeah. be due, you know, coming out of Tassie and, and you'd be 
you'd be chomping at the bit to get back to Queensland, wouldn't you, and do a bit of a road trip? Oh, yeah, for sure. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had a question come in from uh, uh, David Carolyn Taylor um, asking, where do you see your industry in sort of the next 10 years? That's a great question. Hmm. Your <laughs> Personally, I'll probably be retired. But... <laughs> Although I do, I do tell everyone that I'm going to hang around till I'm about 100 and annoy the crap out of them because they, especially my kids, they annoyed the crap out of me for the first 20 years. So it's only, it's only fair. It's only fair. It's only fair. But um, there's got to be some changes made. There's got to be a lot of training come forth to educate people into making barrels, uh, and you know, unless that's done, you know, a lot of coopers around are my vintage or you know, getting close to it. So. I don't know where they're going to come from. Uh, I know um, Robbie, the barrel broker's uh, um, uh, yep. Jobby John uh, Carberry is coming across to, uh, to set up a cooperage with those guys. So that's, and he's interested in doing a lot of training. So that's going to be great for the industry. Absolutely. Uh, he's bringing a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills with him, which would be fantastic. Yep. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the guys that have come through the industry in the last, 20 or 30 years have done a lot of machine work. Yeah. Um, so um, you need people of my sort of vintage that came through using a lot of hand tools. It's the hand tool side of it is important, especially when you're doing uh, shave outs, uh, second fills where you've got to replace staves and stuff like that. You need to have those hand skills, use those hand tools to be able to do those re uh, those necessary repairs to make a, a good cask at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, we, If you walk through our workshop, you'd shake your head. Uh, we actually bought our first piece of coopering equipment the other day. We bought a hoop roller. Uh, everything else in our workshop is basic cabinet making stuff and hand tools. Um, I might, what I might do tomorrow is I'll take some video of Laurie um, cutting in um crozing out the top of a cast adding off the top doing the howl cutting the crows in so if we're making anything over 100 liters it's all hand tools everything's wow. done with hand tools mate so, we'll put that um, on i'm shooting the shit um facebook mm -hmm. page yeah if you got something you want to share there because yeah, I'll, do, I'll do a bit of video tomorrow and shoot it through to you and uh i defy too many other people in australia to do what my son can do uh it's bloody hard work it's very very skillful especially the ads work um and once you see it you'll understand um i came that, through that sounds like words of a pretty proud dad there oh well, you gotta be mate. you gotta be you're doing <laughs> um, all right you're doing all right. He still knows stuff here, but besides that uh but the the, the ads he uses I, I came through using with my training, my training at Bundy Rum, we've mainly done maintenance on barrels. Okay, we weren't making, we were maintaining barrels. They'd come yeah. into our workshop, we'd repair and make them fit to go back into circulation. So we'd be changing out staves and making new heads and so forth. Um, so we had to be able to use hand tools. We had a band saw and a planer in our workshop. That's all we had. Everything else was hand tools. So I cursed it like hell when I was a young bloke and I thought I was being deprived because I didn't get to play with the big toys. But, uh, now I, I really appreciate the fact that we did, I did learn those skills and I've been able to pass a lot of that on to Laurie and he's taken it to another step. Um, 
our ads is a typical ads that I'm used to is a typical English style ads. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with an ads, but it's a looks like a home. No. Okay. Uh, not heard that term. You go. Whereas the, the ads that Laurie uses is a French style ads, and it's the ugliest looking thing you'll ever come across in a long day's work. <laughs> Probably a hundred years old. But it's a two hand to use two hands. I'll, I'll put it up on the video tomorrow and you, you'll be able to see what I'm talking about. I'll show the original English style ads plus the French ads. Yeah. And uh, it's quite a skillful art to do. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to find a picture online of something just so I can see exactly what that is. <laughs> why, why are you doing that? I, I just want to relay a, a beautiful story. Uh, and you, you guys will appreciate this. So, you know, uh, Jim McEwen, uh, ex Beaumont, uh, the resurrection of Brooke Laddie and that. Uh, so he, he started as a boy uh, in, in Beaumont. Uh, he learnt coopering uh, and eventually got to the stage where he was running the distillery. They left Beaumont and went to Brooke Laddie. Anyway, uh, his mentor, who was a cooper, uh, was pretty well on his, on his deathbed. And um, so people came over to, you know, say, you know, farewell to this. I can't remember the guy's name, unfortunately. And he, Jim was there and he, and he said uh, to, the, to his mentor, he said, look, you know, come on, get out of bed. You know, we've we got to work on the wood sort of thing. Come on, we've got things to do. And he said, uh, Jim, I've left you a little something in, in the garden shed. And he goes, okay, thanks. Then the guy passed away. Uh, then Jim and, and his mentor's wife went out to the garden shed, uh, didn't know what it was, jumping around on the floorboards. There was a leaky, creaky floorboard, lifted the floorboard, and it was the guy's old uh, cooperage tools. And they were in a linseed sack from memory, and they were, they were as sharp as that, and they were ready to go. And what he was basically saying is, I've left you my tools, right? You'll always be able to make a coin, uh, use them. Mm. Mm. And mm. when I first heard that, I it just I thought, wow, that's they're passing on something like that. And there is such a such a legacy and such an art form in cooperage, uh, hand cooperage, yeah, not machine cooperage, but hand cooperage. So, which is very cool. And Laurie, I'd love to know. It, once once we open up completely and you want to continue your your journey of exploration because it's obvious that you're thirsty for knowledge and, and you're out there and you're researching where do you want to go on the planet what what's the the place you want to go and experience something and, and further your knowledge in regards to coopering I'd, I'd, I'd like to go to as many places as i could um but i would say the the, the peak for me would probably be france um, just with the the way that they've held on to the tradition, um, with the, the way they do their apprenticeships and still train everybody on the hand tools, um, they've got schools over there for it. Um, it to me, and 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 also getting into you know some of the toasting rooms over there and really getting into the nitty gritty of, of, of wine toasting, which is on a a whole other level to what we do with you know the nuance and and how how spot on it's got to be. Um, yeah, uh, probably France would be a, a place that I would like to spend a bit of time. Um, and you know, then Spain working on the big farts over in Scotland, working on the, 
the, the ASBs and they work on quite a few butts over there as well um, on the on a more production to the line with the hand tools, which would be really good to hone that that fast pace uh, combined with the skill that they do over there, which I find amazing. Like I can do the hand tool stuff, but I could not keep up with the blokes over there when you see them working, they're just on another level. Um, so just go everywhere and do the journeyman thing, I guess, the old the old school way and learn from everyone and just give it a good crack. And video blog it, mate. Video blog it. The whole Absolutely, whole yeah. way. Now, I found yeah. a... Uh, so it's an a ADZE and adds axe. Yeah. Um, and that's a modern example of it. Wow. That's a Viking that's, that's a little one. That's, that's little it's one? the one we... The one we use is a similar concept, or well, the French one is, but it, it basically looks like a, um, you know, like a a, a a mixing bowl, like a stainless steel mixing bowl. If you yeah. cut that in a quarter, it it's got that basically forged onto the end of it. Um, yeah, the, right. the bit comes down sort of flush with the handle and what sort of Harrods be chop, chop down like that. You could eat your cereal out of it if you were that way inclined. <laughs> I've, I've found another one yeah. here that might be closer to. It's got a bit more of a bucket on it. Uh, let's see if I can upload that quickly as well. Let's see whether this one. So that's got a bit that's more really of a bucket like it. on it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a, little, a little bit bigger than that one, the one that yeah. we use. Yeah. It's about around about five pound, the ads itself. So that you actually don't have to work too hard with it. It does all of the work for you. And because you're chopping down uh, with, with the English pattern, you're you're chopping back towards your leg. Uh, with these, we work up in a cradle. Um, the cask is at a good height. You can stand with a straight back and basically just pop down with it, and the, the tool just does the work for you. So how many uh, injuries? How often have you had an injury? I was going to say you that. Come come back back the the yeah. yeah, how many fingers yeah, have you got? Yeah, got them all. And I... Add, add to Luke's comment. I want to know how the hell do you drive with a hoop driver and not smash your hand? I still smash my hand for sure. <laughs> I um, the, the probably the most injuries I cop is from the driver, particularly when yeah. you're trussing casts, pulling them in on the fire because we we don't use a winch. Um, we we truss them all by hand, so we have a series of uh, three mil steel hoops and. We warm the cask on the fire and we have a series of hoops that we walk around and drive them down and to slowly pull it into shape. Um, and right. often there you get a bit carried away and walk fast. Um, Dad tried to teach me when I started to drag my foot and I naturally didn't listen. So I, I walk around the cask and it, it always ends up that you step at the same place where your driver is hitting. And when you miss hit your driver, it's supposed to shoot through and hit the floor. But... If you're wearing steel caps, it'll hit the top of your foot. And if you're not wearing steel caps, it's guaranteed to hit your toe. So I do that quite a bit. Um, and and also miss miss the driver completely if I'm distracted and, and hit the top, top top of your hand around the thumb there. Do that a bit. Um, yeah, but no yeah, broken right. right. fingers. What's yeah, going you on? You have to develop a squeaky voice from the ads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Fingers crossed on that one. I don't. What's, yeah. what's the biggest... Uh... What's the biggest splinter you've had? Oh, yeah. yeah. Had a few of them. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We used to get some big. good ones out of the vats, yeah. out of the big uh, vats when we were building them for Bundy. You'd hand them in big timber and you're sliding your hand down stuff and you, 
Yeah, I've had some pretty nasty splinters out of that oh, stuff. They burn. <laughs> oh, well, they're already sterilized, though. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Not when they're new. I don't know. I don't know. You're going to find something to sterilize them with. Yeah. <laughs> Run. Let's let's talk about cooperages in Tasmania. Let's talk about Tasmania and the whiskey scene. So there's what sixty distilleries in Tasmania now. I don't know what percentage of those are making uh, whiskey, but um, cooperage. There's there's how many cooperages are there in, in Tassie now? And how do you is what's the relationship between the cooperages? We all get on fantastically well together. Uh, there's yeah. three cooperages. There's ourselves. There's uh, Tas Casco uh, yeah. down at Hobart and uh, Tas Tiger. Uh, which is yep. set up at Sheen, which is now will be owned by Lark going forward. Um, right. I think um, Johnny Ibrahim, who was part of Sheen, he's retained the cooperage until February next year. He's leasing it back off of Lark. So after right. that, they will, they will take ownership of that. And then I believe John will be looking at building another cooperage then at Oaklands to satisfy his requirements there. So the three of it, at Callington Mill, yeah. So at present, there's three cooperages. Um, we're probably the smallest. Uh, we yep. have the least amount of equipment. Um, uh, John spent a lot of money on equipment at, at uh, Sheen when he built the cooperage there. He's got very yep. modern, very up-to-date gear. Yep. Um, and I think there's usually about four guys working in there, but they also do a lot of other work for the distillery as well. They're not grouping the full time. Right. And then you've got Tess Casco, I think. I think the last I heard, maybe 12 to 15 guys working in there, putting out about 100, 120 barrels a week. So who's, who's heading we... up Tassie Casco now? Pardon? Who's, who's heading up uh, Taz Casco now? It was Steve Mart was the guy I used to deal with years ago. He moved on. Who's the who's the main contact at, at Taz Casco now? I think now uh, Scott... Scott um, Scotty Quinn was there for a long time when we first came down. Scott's no longer there. Yeah. Um, Maybe well, Troy, I think. Troy, yeah, Troy um, Smith, is it? Troy, sure, no. Troy Troy was the last guy I dealt with there. He's a nice, hell of a nice guy. Uh, yeah, right. But I think most of your contact now is done through uh, Andrew at Mastercast in South Australia. Yeah, of I course. Yeah, 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 she's part of SA, SA and, yeah. and Taz Custer. Yeah. And what about... Um, the first Cooperage I ever met, uh, and he was a great guy, a larger than life, was Adam Bone, Boney. Where's Boney nowadays? Is he on the uh, scene? No, Boney, I don't think Boney's doing a great deal these days. Um, yeah. I've only met Boney on two occasions, um, yeah. and both of those occasions were after he, he sold out Tascasco. Um, yeah. I think he may have had an exclusion on him for a few years where he couldn't actually go back into coopering. Right. Um, yeah. I, I believe he's, he's uh, yeah, I'm not doing anything in the coopering line at the moment. I'm not sure exactly what he's up to. I think he may have a little bit of health issue. I'm not sure. If someone yeah. said to us the other day, he was maybe a little bit, uh, uh, I may have a health issue as well, but I, that's, I, that's only here yeah. to say I'm not sure. Yeah, well, we wish him well. We wish Adam well. So, talk yeah. about the whiskey yeah. scene. Then. Talk talk about the the Tasmanian whiskey scene. How do you, how, as Coopers, how do you see the vibrancy of the Tasmanian whiskey scene? What's exciting you about the, the Tasmanian whiskey scene? 
it's alive as it's alive at the moment. It's mm. really, really buzzing. A uh, lot of small guys coming onto the market, uh, which is great to see. And then you've got your your, your bigger guys like your Callingtons that John, Johnny Ibrahim's doing at uh, Oatlands at Callington Mill. That's that's a fantastic structure that he's put up there. It's it's a real showcase that place. Yeah. Uh, and then Lark with what they're doing down there, that's massive. They're going to really put the face of Tassie on the map as far as whiskey's concerned. Um, Overeem doing big things. Um, Hellier's Road, you don't hear much of Hellier's Road. You know, they've got a fantastic setup up there as well. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, and a couple of young guys out of Vishino, uh, Warbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're doing some interesting stuff, aren't they? That's going to be brilliant, that place when it's up yeah. and running. Really, really nice guys. And that's what we find with the whiskey industry. Uh, we don't, we haven't met anyone that you wouldn't like to say, you wouldn't like to call a mate. They're all great people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Damien Makey, you know, there's some real gentlemen out there. Damien Makey from uh, Newtown Distillery. Uh, Chris, 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 Con- Blondes, Chris Condon from yeah. Launceston. You would not meet a better person anywhere um and it, it, it's just so many good people and we just lower marshes the guys at lower marshes steve and corey down there only small distillery but, yeah. you know they're doing doing really great things growing their own barley molting it themselves you left out a couple of uh local lads uh your neighbors oh, the adams boys they're, yeah the adams boys <laughs> they're uh, <laughs> they got some fairly big plans going on there. Uh, when, when, do, when don't they have big plans? <laughs> uh, yeah, not since I've met them, they haven't. No, <laughs> they're, just... they're planning to do big stuff there. Uh, taking a little bit longer than they would like, I, I feel. But um, yeah, I, I think in another 12, 18 months, they, they might be up and producing again. Yeah. And Sullivan's Cove have just landed a, a big round of funding as well, haven't they? Yeah, 3.3 million. Yeah. Mm. Sullivan's Cove make a brilliant whiskey. Heather, the head distiller there, is a fantastic person, very, very knowledgeable. She'd be oh, one yeah, of the most knowledgeable people we've ever spoken to in the whiskey industry. Yeah. She's brilliant. We had her in for a toasting one time, and it was just mind-blowing, the, the knowledge that she has with, with the whole thing. It was it was great. Learned so much from her, just you know, toasting some casts and trying to pick her brain as much as we could. It was great. Lovely no, person. Great deal of knowledge. Love, lovely person, great deal of knowledge. And she came from the wine background and she just yes. brought in a whole different skill set. Um, yeah. And yeah, no, she's, she's uh, yeah, definitely kicking some goals down there. Which is There's great. another guy up in Queensland, uh, Adam Chapman. I don't know if you've heard of Adam at all. He's an ex winemaker and he's right. a distiller for a distillery at Sunshine Coast called Pavu, C A V U. And oh, he, yes. is, he is. Absolutely, he's up. He's up there with with uh, Heather. Uh, he's he's brilliant as far as rum's concerned. Uh, he's brought all his winemaking skills into the into the production of, of rum, and he's yeah. taken it to another level. He's he's going to be. He's, watch that space. They're going to be producing some really really high class rums. So the uh, the Cavu website says uh, not the makers of Australia's finest rum yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very confident people very nice very nice very nice very nice i think they launched their, they have their launch next on the 22nd they yeah, the uh, 22nd of the second yeah yeah 222 on the 22nd of the second they launched their first run 
Yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. Make a point of putting that up. Clues, on that. I don't know if I've got them all right or not. <laughs> yeah, we double check. <laughs> we don't. We don't want to. We don't want to cause a <laughs> a panic unnecessarily. So yeah, make sure the facts but, are right. But people, people like him and people like Heather, they'll drive the industry yeah. to another level. That's for sure. Mm. And and you know, like Chris Condon, he's got such passion in the in the business as well. And the Adams boys have got a little, so much passion. Johnny Ibrahim, you know, those types of people are really going to. I'm only talking about people that I know down here. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot more up in the mainland, yourself included. You know, the passionate used people that you people have, this industry can only be successful and you get stronger and, and more successful as time goes by, I believe. I'm just yeah. shame that I'm not 40 years younger to enjoy a lot more of it. <laughs> well, you get to the spoils. You live to 100 and something, so you're all right. Don't worry. Yeah, 110. <laughs> I think I might put it up to 120 just to really piss them off. <laughs> <laughs> we've got um, we got John Ibrahim and Bill Lark uh, on in a couple of weeks. Um, That'd be great. Yeah, and I've been trying to, trying to get John for some time. And I didn't know John directly, but I knew people who knew John. And it was quite amazing to connect the points to John. So finally, uh, we got, I got an introduction and John rang me up and we talked and he didn't know me, right, apart yep. from what I did and the invitation to do a shoot and shit episode. And we, we talked for 40 minutes on the phone, right, yep. and it was just blah, 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 blah. You know, what's going on in the industry and that? It was, it was very, very cool. Um, very and you're right, there's, there's a lot of passionate people um, in the industry and the, and the big thing that I say is we don't have a lot of restrictions on how we make our products. And that's our competitive advantage. And yep. so when you hear talk of people saying, well, we need more regulation, we need to control things more, we need to do this and do that. We don't. We don't. You know, we, we, we need to maximize our advantage, our competitive advantage with what we've got right now. Um, and people are, people are pushing in all directions, whether it's barrels, whether it's barley, whether it's yeast, whether it's maturation, whether it's refills, whatever it is, it's, it's a really cool time to be making spirits. It really is. So, yeah. Well, I that's my anyone, I think anyone who's getting into the industry now is the first thing they need to do is to, to, to make sure they're going to be successful is to make sure they got themselves a contact with a cooper someone where they can get their barrels from. Otherwise, they can spend all this money building up a beautiful distillery and yep. then have nothing to put it in. I mm. see that as a problem going forward, actually getting... We're knocking back clients every day because we're at our capacity well and truly. So we've closed yep. our books. We're not taking on any more new clients because we just cannot handle any more. And it breaks our heart to do it because we like to, we like to help people out, but we just cannot do it. Um, yep. And... I'm sure everyone else is in the same boat. If we're mm. in that boat, everyone else is going to be. So, you know, anyone who's looking at getting into the industry, they really need to look at where they're going to get their oat from. Well, you, you talk you about... that being a problem? Do you see that being a problem in uh, a, uh, an upcoming problem in the yes. Yes. for the whole industry? Uh, we've, got to get, we've got to get the Cooper industry reinstated so that we can get the apprenticeship system going again so we can train mm. people. Yeah. Um, and that's got to happen. And yeah. I think with John Carberry coming out with his experience with training, I think he'll be doing a little bit of it. We're looking at doing a bit ourselves through Laurie. 
Um, and uh, particularly with yeah, particularly with the direction of the industry, like you know, talking about going into larger format casts and stuff like that, where it will, I think, inevitably look a bit more like Scotland, where you're you're filling you know straight into the cast, where you you know when you're recuperating down to a hundred liter, you can do that with the machine, and and you know it's not necessarily a, a skilled job per se um, in terms of time learning the skill. Whereas if the industry does get to the point where a lot more fully filled stuff is being done. That's where it's the only way to do it is is by the hand tools. So, you know, people have got to start learning how to use the ads, the crumb knife, the crows to, to get a cask in, check it over, replace staves, you know, fix broken heading. So they're using the tools that have been used for thousands of years since the inception of the trade. Um, yeah. So we're, we're looking at going down that line and that's, you know, we've got Heath down and we're, we're speaking to other people as well and we're kind of in, in its infancy at the minute, but that's that's more or less our direction as opposed to expanding our cooperage and trying to employ people and, you know, take over the place. We want to we wanna try and put the skills into the hands of more people and, and my in my mind, I'd like to see a lot of distilleries be able to have their own small setup on site, you know, something that, you know, you can get into affordably be able to look after your own cast, toast your own cast, have that control in house where you know you've you've got you've got your eye on everything that's going on. You know what wood's coming, you know what it looks mm-hmm. like before it gets shaved, you know what it smells like when it's toasted, you know when you're gonna cut that toast, you, you know roughly the flavour profile you're looking at, you know your char level. You, you take away that element of surprise, I guess, when at the end of the day if you pull it out, it's not quite what you asked for or, or what you, you know, what you were expecting. But that's that's that it. That's experience. It's that exposure. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 so so important. I just want to. Um, we're at one thirty, uh, one minute thirty. So we tend to wrap up about an hour and a half. Um, but I just want to. I just want to raise a topic which goes right back to the start. We were talking about wood shortage, um, and there's a couple of interesting things that are happening in America, um, which is going to have ramifications as I see it and just what I've read and what talking to different people. So the the um, the American white oak forest uh, and the harvesting of the forest, the, the wood is taking longer to reach maturation for conversion to barrels. So what's happening is there's going to be a shortage of new American white oak, right? Compounding that, well, not compounding, but as a response to that, there's a big push in America to change the legislation that prevents bourbon makers from using refill barrels. They, as you well know, they all have to go into uh, freshly charred New American white oak barrels, which means that those barrels cannot be used again, which means the majority of the barrels go to Scotland. Right? If they change the legislation in America and they start to move into refills for bourbon and that, that's going to put pressure on the, the supply line to Scotland and the amount of bourbon barrels that are going to Scotland, which in turn is going to have an impact on what they do as far as their barrel programs, which in turn is going to have an impact the rest of the world. Are you hearing that? Are you, you, do you see that as a, as a, as a more of a longer term problem, but do you see that as a problem? Yeah, we, we talk about it a little bit in the workshop. Um, see different reports coming through where they're saying that they're going to start using second fills in the bourbon industry um i see a little bit of resistance to that from the 
bourbon manufacturers because it's going to change their profile of the flavour that they're uh, they're looking for. Yeah. Um, if they're forced into it, they'll be forced into it. They'll have to do it. But I see them resisting it for as long as they possibly can. Yeah. Um, I done a little bit of research into it the other day, and I I think I read somewhere that in 2020 there was two and a half million barrels filled with bourbon. So two and a half million. So that means you're getting rid of two and a half million as well. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, at, at the end of 2020, there was 10 million barrels stored with bourbon in America, and another million with other spirits in it. So there's 11 million barrels floating around over there somewhere. There's yeah. a bit of a shortage at the moment. I believe a lot of that's caused by glass shortage or bottle shortage, where they they're not able to, to to bottle a lot of their liquid because they can't get the glass. So it's putting a hell of a strain on on uh, on on yeah the, the barrel supplies. Yep. Um, but that's got to turn around at some stage so that they will free up again. They're saying probably 2023 things start, should start to free up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but also I'd done some numbers on it, like with a, a bourbon cast, there's roughly 0.1 of a cubic meter of timber goes into a bourbon cast. So cubic meter of timber will make 10 bourbon casts. Right. The average oak tree, when you fell it, the recovery, if you got a cubic meter out of an oak tree, you'd be doing really, really well. I don't think you would, but if we'll say you do, that's 250,000 trees. They've got to cut down. Wow. This wow, year. That's a lot. And there's only about 7% of the oak that's cut in America that actually goes into coopering. The rest of it goes into other manufacturing processes. Right. So, so there's a lot of trees being cut down. Uh, so there's got to be a strain on something somewhere along the line. Um, yeah. In in Europe, they tend to France. They tend to manage their forests very well. I yep. think the French oak is bought at auction. I think that might be the case, Laurie. Yeah. So I think so. They control the supply of oak very very well over there, but they're not using the volumes that they do in America. Yeah. But I suppose yeah, in another five to ten years time there could be a little bit of an issue coming forward mm. um therefore we're going to have to start looking at using more of our wine barrels i believe which goes back to what i'm saying right at the start yeah yeah but it also means you're going to see scottish distilleries bigger ones uh barrel banking on a massive level uh on the basis that they know this is coming down the pipe in, in five years so they're going to be just they're just going to be buying up wood and storing it Yep. Which is going to... And there's to... more and more distilleries appearing. You know, like every... You know, <laughs> how many distilleries in Australia now? And we're only dropping the ocean. There's, what, probably 250, 300 distilleries in Australia now? Yep, something like so, that. And, yeah. and you've got America, all the the, the uh, micro distilleries and so forth over there now, and, yep. and more distilleries being created in Scotland, in your rum industry in Jamaica and so forth. You know, the spirit industry is growing massively worldwide, so... Yeah, There's yeah. even more strength being put on that barrel supply because of the growth of the industry as well. So, mm. It's quite sobering, actually. It, it's You do have to think about your wood policy. That's mm. bottom line. What's your wood policy? Yeah. Mm. yeah. No, that's, that's, mm. that's really good. good. I'm glad we did that. Luke, uh, Jim did a comment about Crafty. You dropped the bomb. What was the bomb I dropped? <laughs> I'd love to know. <laughs> Jim, the last the... question, mate. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. 
Well, don't panic just yet, but uh, just be aware of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's uh, everyone's a little scared of that. Yeah. yeah. And what the impact is on, on, on pricing as well. Uh, I mean, there, there are reports that Scotch is going to triple in price in the next few years. Uh, supply and demand and, and Japanese market, market coming online massively and, and everything else that's going on. Um, it's interesting times and COVID has definitely changed the landscape. Um, mm. Supply line management, oh my God, we all know about that, don't we? Mm -hmm. Yeah. With our with our Australian excess as well, the Australia tax on uh, on all of our uh, alcohol products as well, that's going to be uh, terrifyingly huge. Yeah. Look, it's there, there has been some some relief with with the federal government, um, mm. and they're trying to they're trying to support the industry, but. Each six months, every six months, the excise tax goes up, CPI, mm. and uh, it just keeps creeping up. And uh, yeah, no, that's 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 a worry. All right, guys, I think at one thirty-seven, I think we'll wrap it up, um, and we need to do the sponsors. So actually, let's out before we do that. <laughs> let's talk before we say goodbye. <laughs> let's talk to one of our sponsors. So one of our sponsors of Aussie Craft Distillers Shooting the Ship. We're very, very grateful. And we're very pleased to present Laurie and Dave and Pam. <laughs> so, guys, thank you for your support. Uh, in a nutshell, 30 seconds or less, tell us what <laughs> about you. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> What's the sales pitch? Go. <laughs> So Just my, listen my, to half hour and a half. What's your sales pitch? Uh, this what's, is, what's this is your time to sell your business. one of our sponsors. What would we you like to say? We don't want any more, we don't want any more customers. <laughs> <laughs> Go away. <laughs> yeah. Just go away. Everyone just go away. Yeah, that's it. We're chocolate We'd love to help you all, but we can't. <laughs> Which is a brilliant problem to have. Yeah. 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 That's, that's yeah. All right. So don't bother. Uh, don't bother the fellas. They're don't bother the Transwood. <laughs> yep. They, they, they don't want to hear Refuse from you. Thing. <laughs> Feel free to send them booze. But um, you're <laughs> unlikely to get a barrel from them. Um, instead, maybe try Andrew Young uh, from Lyon Cooperage, uh, who is, of course, no, he'll tell you to piss off as well. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. So ignore oh, our two right. barrel sponsors. Uh, oh, no, have a chat to the barrel brokers. Robbie, Robbie might have something for you. He's got plenty. Oh, no, You'll ring Robbie up and he'll go, what do you want? <laughs> and you anyway. probably you probably can't talk to Burns either because I know they're fully booked. Yeah, uh, um, if you want to see don't talk to Burnsy because they'll be a, no, Burnsy, can't yeah. help you. Come and talk to Burnsy, please. <laughs> I, I think uh, Colmart down here has got about two years' work ahead of him as well. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> 
Uh, all right. So, which of our sponsors can you talk to? I mean, look, Wild Wogan, <laughs> we, we haven't run out of water yet. So, no, I think Adrian's good. He can supply your water. He can supply your water, great. <laughs> more, more of it's falling out of the sky as we speak. So, yeah, yeah, I can hear it. <laughs> Uh, we've got uh, Saber Glass. I don't. I don't think we've got a shortage of glass at the moment. Do oh, we? I don't know. Uh, you've got to get your orders in and, and hope like hell they turn up on time. Yeah. Global supply chains kick in there. Yeah. <laughs> good. 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 All right. Um, uh, who else we got? CCL. All right. We got um, CCL. Can they yeah, no, I struggle with getting label stock material internationally? Oh, <laughs> So, um, as always, we're doing we're doing a good homage to our um, our suppliers. Right. So, um, <laughs> thanks for your support, everyone. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just, just don't. Pam just come up with our sales pitch. She said, "Don't call us; we'll call you." <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> we're going to finish the night off on a nice TIB from Timmy Ducker. Oh, nice! Very, very, very nice. nice. Very nice. Well, uh, in two weeks' time, we have uh, Callington Mill, John Ibrahim. So that's booked in for oh, wow. the 3rd of, well, according to the calendar that Crafty controls, um, that's on the so, so who knows when we're speaking to John then? Yeah. Look, I think it's on the 3rd of, uh, of March. Uh, so and and you, sent be... a, you sent a reminder to John. So... You did, I or thought, I did? I didn't. I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Um, and then yeah, yeah, two weeks later, we've got uh, Still Magic, uh, Marcel yeah. Thompson. Yeah, which is um, all about um, yeah setting up a distillery and and uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, um, and it's going to be very, very interesting. And we're actually, um, you know, we're booked out. Pretty much for the for the whole year, uh, we got sessions lined up every second every second Thursday, and we're squeezing in a couple more. Mm. Uh, and we're also we're also going to have guest presenters. So last two weeks ago, uh, Luke bailed out; he couldn't do it, and John Jarvis stepped in, which was cool. Luke uh, bailed out, followed by Crafty. Yeah, I bailed well, out. Crafty as well. fell out. Yeah. So we so, so, so John and I ran it solo. And I, we had I, I pre-organized my absence. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, uh, right. so yeah, we, we've got some good stuff coming up, uh, certainly. And yeah, as Crafty said, we're booked up all the way to the end of the year. So, so don't, talk to us, um, we'll talk to don't don't call us, we'll call you. Yep, perfect. <laughs> that's your, that's your, you leave it alone. <laughs> trademark, trademark. Well, Patent, we'll yeah. a trademark on one. There's a patent on that. Please like and subscribe on Facebook and YouTube. It does help us out. Please share with uh, anybody who you think will bother listening to us. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, thank you very much for listening. And, uh, yeah, have a good evening. And, Dave, Laurie, mate, that was awesome. A uh, lot of learnings there. Appreciate it. I learned a lot, and a lot of people out there would have learned. And, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it'll get pushed out. fantastic. Yeah, that really was. That's Thanks, guys. Nice. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, Much really appreciate it. Nah, I hope you enjoyed yourself. All right, I am hitting end now.
Oh, yeah. shit. 